In this episode of Shaping the Future, I'm speaking with Adrian Tate, co-founder of the Climate Psychology Alliance, about his contribution to the new Deep Adaptation book. This newly published volume, edited by and contributed to by Jem Bendel and Rupert Reed, includes an updated version of the original Deep Adaptation paper, as well as input from a total of 20 contributors across a range of fields that deal with issues related to deep adaptation and the subject of collapse. Deep Adaptation, with its subheader of Navigating the Realities of Climate Chaos, is divided into three parts, the predicament, shifts in being, and shifts in doing. Adrian's contribution gives a broad overview of the evolving field of climate psychology, including the symptoms of distress and denial, as well as assisting us to recognise and sympathise when we detect them in peers and or colleagues. Deep Adaptation covers a range of subjects, including the future of activism, leadership, the study of collapse itself, and related ideas. It is itself a starting point to explore themes around both feeling, assimilating, and responding to systemic as well as ecological collapse. The subject of this book contrasts and complements another book that will be published later this year titled The Fight for Climate After Covid-19 by Alice Hill. Alice has previously served as Special Assistant to President Barack Obama, and Senior Director for Resilience Policy on the National Security Council staff and we'll be discussing her new book here in late August, just ahead of publication. Thank you for listening to Shaping the Future. You can now see the full archive of episodes at gen.cc, along with the archive of interviews and footage recorded at the last five COPs. As we prepare for COP26 in Glasgow, it is worth considering that the climate threats anticipated 30 years ago at the Rio Earth Summit are now among us, creating suffering and loss on a daily basis, while not one policy fit for purpose has been implemented to prevent them. Someone might have warned George Bush Sr. when he stated that the American way of life is not up for negotiation, that nature cares not for political grandiosity. You can subscribe to Shaping the Future on the usual channels and also support my work via Patreon. Thank you. Adrian, it's, it's good to speak to you again. Can I start by asking you, how does climate psychology fit into the context of the deep adaptation work? And in particular, the objectives of this book? Well, I think in terms of the background connection, that the links are conceptual, personal and operational. CPA has been very much aware of prospects and visions of collapse since, since its beginnings uh, 10 or more years ago. Jem Bendel's 2018 deep adaptation paper caused quite a stir in CPA as it did elsewhere. He drew attention to our existence in the footnotes to that paper and later asked us to step up our support work. As you may know or could imagine, the collapse message in the deep adaptation paper affected people profoundly. In a sense, the genie was let out of the bottle. CPA approached him for a couple of speaking engagements following that, and um, my colleague Paul Hoggett also shared a platform with Rupert Reed in Bristol. So the, the links developed over, over a period of a couple of years. Then German Rupert asked me if I could contribute a chapter to their book on deep adaptation, and they were generous in giving me pretty free reign in telling my version of the climate psychology story, which connects strongly to the collapse theme in some places and less so in others. Well, I think the strength of the connection is evident in how naturally I found the four principles of deep adaptation, resilience, relinquishment, restoration, and reconciliation, 
how naturally I found them fitting into my thoughts for this interview today. Now we talk about more specifically your chapter and one of the things I noticed quite early on in the chapter is you mentioned the value of exposing our heart and body to the scale of the climate issue and from my experience in talking to to ordinary people who are you know getting on with their lives and things that they quite often openly state that they avoid doing that yeah. Yeah. can you can you talk about a that tension and but also why it yeah. is important yeah. the value one little detail to start off with um i mentioned body because emotion is embodied experience and um one of the disconnects which can very easily happen and, and we've we've seen this with climate science in certainly in previous years is that the subject gets dealt with in a purely intellectual way and the feelings get left out and that is part of the culture of science and there are sound reasons for it but the drawback is that if it gets conveyed communicated to people more widely in that sort of tone it can all too easily fall flat and, and that's a problem which has been I think addressed quite effectively in recent years but more widely um, yes avoidance is all too understandable at an individual level but lethal at a collective level people are increasingly waking up to the threat but many still stay clear or raise their defensive barriers even higher as more disturbing information comes in and I think political leadership is a critical factor here as Extinction Rebellion insists, tell the truth. Awareness needs to reach a level that enables difficult policy decisions to be made and overcomes inertia, as well as denialist pushback. More people need to wake up and those who are awake to the scale of the threat need courage and imagination in order to make their awareness count. This applies whether we're talking about deep adaptation as our stable earth system unravels or about mitigating the damage. I'll just add to that, the response picture is still contradictory. So many more people and the earth itself are sounding the alarm, that it's a human thing to cling to the familiar even when the familiar is killing us. There's a widespread reluctance to rock the boat, the old fossil fuel economics, consumption and waste. The boats hold below the waterline, an increasing number of people see that, but along with habit and fear of losing what we have, consumer culture encourages feelings of entitlement. All this distorts understanding of the real choices facing us and the realities we can't bargain with. Growing efforts to pull things in a saner and safer direction are often viewed with suspicion and resentment and not just by the people who stand to lose their jobs as we phase out of a carbon-based economy, important as that issue is. You talked about more people starting to be aware, and in the recent weeks we've seen, or recent days even really, but we've seen horrendous flooding, fires, you know, the, the full range of, of impacts in places which we would normally regard as, as safe. And I think more people now are probably going to be trying to face this. But is there also, do you think, a risk of overexposure? You mentioned Donna Hathaway's staying with the trouble. Um, and some people do try to do this, but it can create burnout. What work is there that an individual can draw on to stay with the trouble yeah. constructively? There's different ways of answering that question. And, and I'll, I'll preface my more direct answer with it 
a couple of comments. I feel I must say in response to the, to, to the um, uh, suggestion of overexposure, um, that you could say that people were overexposed to the Hitler threat in 1939-45. And incidentally, people were, were saying before World War II that, that he, he didn't mean us any harm and the threat was exaggerated. So there's nothing new about denial. Um, this threat now is, is far bigger, uh, even though the villainy and the murder involved has a different shape. And then the other thing I, I felt I must say from a justice perspective, is that those who are really overexposed to climate and ecological collapse are the ones losing their lives, houses, livelihoods to the extreme weather caused by global heating. And let's not forget that the earth is overexposed to our species. Those are the real burnouts in my view. But moving back more directly to your question, my take on, on Donna Haraway's catchphrase is, we need to stay with the trouble, however disorientating it is, and not fall for illusory escape routes, which I guess are an, a topic for another, another conversation, because we're the cause of it and it's liable to engulf us. It's tough. Some people will always refuse, and those of us who don't are all struggling, we're all struggling to grasp what we're facing. The situation calls for psychological and emotional stamina, in a word, resilience. We all need each other's support in that. And by the way, I think COVID-19, you know, as, as well as wearing us down in, in, in some ways, may have taught us some lessons in resilience. Perhaps the jury's out on that. But in terms of the psychology of those who are closely involved, I think there's a balancing act that has to be, has to be achieved between commitment and relaxation. The commitment is sustained by the feeling that there's no work more important than this. But if individually we try to carry the world on our shoulders, then our shoulders will break. And I guess we all have our own individual variations on that response. And I think it was, you know, very much in the vein of struggling to stay with the issue when the system is seemingly ignoring the issue and that kind of um, feeling about swimming against the tide very aware of the people who are actually just dying as a consequence today let alone talking about 2030 2040 2050 and i think it's a very difficult difficult thing to to live with what are the signs and we'll come back to this idea of denial which you talk about a lot in your chapter um the signs that people who are in denial exhibit, and I know this is, again, a, quite a, a broad question. But. Yeah, hard, hard question to answer concisely. Um, but I think maybe the key point is it depends on the type of denial that's going on. There's the basic defence against, psychological defence against loss and disruption. I can't believe things are that bad. Um, you, you could say in a way that that's a spontaneous and, and, and relatively honest reaction, albeit a defence. Then there's the much more co common or pervasive double think or split, accepting that things are bad, but not accepting any responsibility for making choices or relinquishing anything. But I haven't forgotten that you said signs and words aren't the only signs. If you watch and listen carefully, you, you can pick up the nonverbal clues about denial as well, which convey things like scorn or anger or fear. Those clues, I think, improve our chances of meeting denial effectively if we can just sort of 
listen to them and sort of momentarily think about them rather than simply reacting. If we do that listening, we can meet denial effectively rather than engaging in sterile debate. Okay. And one of the things you do mention is narcissism as a kind of output or one of the components of this. And it's a prevalent term in today's society. And, you know, there are very obvious candidates in the public eye who can be called narcissists. What is the relationship here with denial or yeah. yes i think i think it does need unpacking a bit it, it's a long word but but a real gem from depth psychology whose founders knew well that that ancient myths contain psychological truths in this case we have narcissus staring into a pool of water in love with his own image how could the ancient greeks have ever guessed that a whole culture would be built on this principle <laughs> it's it's a feature of all of us but where it gets pathological is when it dominates our outlook and, and stunts our ability to relate to the other as other, to be empathic, to feel care. So the relationship of narcissism to denial is in the hypervaluing of self and devaluing of all that not me but connected to me world um, out there. I'll say a bit more about that, but just, just to interject, um, you know, it, we could just as validly talk about individualism. And I got a lot of respect for the thinking of the Vietnamese Buddhist Thich Nhat Hanh, who said that the survival of humankind through to the end of this century depends on a transition, us achieving a transition from the cult of individualism to a new sense of collective identity and collective interest. But back to narcissism what my colleague Sally Weintraub calls a culture of uncare. In that culture, this grossly inflated version of narcissism is encouraged and normalized. The culture feeds and feeds off an uncaring attitude, a self-centeredness. From that position, the realities of interdependence, the needs of the less fortunate, everything and everyone we rely on are all marginalized in our awareness. Interaction is transactional, not relational. So predatory, exploitative, abusive patterns of behavior can flourish. We then have what some call a malignant normality. You highlight a number of cultural complexes, which, are, which is um, a really good term in the context of climate change. These are myths that blind society to our true relationship to other humans and other creatures, and that are manipulated by politicians and in media. As an outcome of denial, how does narcissism fit into the range of cultural complexes that you mention in your chapter in the Deep Adaptation book? Yeah. Um, well, well, picking up on that conversation about narcissism, there's nothing new about the kind of pathological patterns I was describing. But the unfortunate reality is that since, since the Second World War, we've also had what's called the Great Acceleration. The scale and pace of extraction, emissions, population, and pollution has risen steeply. So the cultural complex in this instance is that restraint and moderation have been under an ideologically driven attack just when we needed those qualities most. You could say the catchphrase of that whole worldview is growth is imperative and greed is good. And the myths perpetuated by media manipulate society on both the individual and collective levels. Is there a way that the field of climate psychology can help restore agency and power to individuals and collectives? 
as um, as we turn to face the larger climate and ecological crisis? I do think agency is the key notion and issue. And I'm glad to say there are colleagues in CPA focusing on, on this very question. I think there's a paradox here because you can't not ask what any, any one of us or any group of us can do in a system where a tiny minority of people are hogging most of the prosperity in a rigged system. A largely unregulated advertising industry is skillfully manipulating us and our children. Corporations are behaving like psychopaths and, and media is embedded in the system and governments are weak or corrupt. Just a, a rider to the comment about media, that's another whole complex subject. And you know, one of the key issues is fact-checking. So much um, identity and belief is now built up within a social media system, um, which is often completely devoid of fact-checking. You also have a, a wide spectrum of positions within the more conventional media when it comes to the attention which gets paid to fact-checking. So there's a, a lot of susceptibility to wild opinions, uh, so-called remedies, which in a way is, is the exact reverse of the problem I was highlighting earlier, that you get the dissociation in this instance of emotion, of gut reaction from thinking. There was something else about the theme of agency I, want, I wanted to add. This follows from the bit about media being embedded in the system and governance being weak or corrupt. But it all requires our consent. Human tipping points can occur. And the one we need now depends on seeing the social and financial injustice of the current economic system, the destabilizing and, and wrecking of our planet, and the theft of the future. We don't have the luxury of knowing what restoration is possible. But every species saved, every forest planted, every step to rein in emissions feeds into the collective effort. Agency starts with seeing that we can choose to embrace different values from those that have been dominant in, in recent decades. So climate psychology is part of something much, much bigger, but it has a distinct contribution. It, for instance, supports the view that hope, as distinct from optimism, is a state of being which doesn't necessarily collapse in the face of collapse. I think a lot of people go through this when they start really looking at this issue. There is this sense of despair, a great deal of sort of torment in a way. And that kind of takes your agency away for a while because you're staring this thing in the face. And do you think climate psychology, if what we're talking about, helps kind of redress that condition? Again, I feel I want, I want to interject something to sort of try to maintain a balance when it comes to the mass of suffering that we're talking about here. And, and the loss of lives, lands, homes and livelihoods is appalling. And once again, I might add, dominating the news because rich countries are being hit hard. We can't banish the resulting distress. And I don't think we should try to because grief at what's happening is a measure of our humanity. But the actual directless victims of climate change need the presence of people who understand trauma. So I'm starting on a little series of thoughts about where care and support needs to be directed. My next thought, you might not be surprised to know, is that the children and young people who are fearful or enraged about their future prospects are collapsing. They need to know that they're heard by their parents, teachers and governments, even if those closest to them haven't got any particularly comforting or, or easy answers. It's very important not to overlook the comfort inherent in knowing that you've, you've been heard 
and are being responded to as truthfully as makes sense, given your age and, and situation. And th then my mind turns to activists and, and activism. Activism can be a fantastic channel for expressing care and rage, as XR puts it, as well as building collective strength and power. Activists can be the vanguard of change, but they're vulnerable too, and need to know that their commitment and risk-taking is respected. But I think you use the term collective distress, and that leads me to the thought that the conversation has to include something, I don't know what the right term for it might be, but existential dread is what comes to mind. And that transcends the groupings I've listed and can affect any of us. I think it's in our sense of collective care and day-to-day -day mindfulness that we keep ourselves well and as safe as possible, despite what we're facing. Do you think what we've seen even in recent, and I'm gonna use the context of Europe for the moment, that we've seen these, these incredible floods especially in places like Germany which is you know there's 200 people died and there's still a thousand missing and so on it looks like it's not a new normal it's the start of something that's going to get progressively worse are we on the cusp of a huge mental health crisis yeah. as, as what is happening sinks in from observation and from experience I think the answer to that has got to be yes the evidence so far is patchy um but as I say, climate psychology is in one sense a tiny piece of the picture, but a lot is being learned throughout reach work and research. For instance, there's a growing international network of psychiatrists and psychotherapists, which started as a collaboration between colleagues in the UK and the USA, but it's now connecting with other parts of the world. And that needs to accelerate because the storm is getting heavier. So I, I don't claim that's any kind of a complete answer to your question, but it, it's the answer that occurs to me from the field in which I'm operating. Well, another easy one for you to end on, and it's can we possibly overcome the collective distress to attempt to respond humanely to what is coming? Yeah. Well, that is such a big one. And I hesitate to end with a, with a, with a dark thought, but actually it's a, it's a question. Because where your question leads me is to the subject of how we behave towards each other. And one of the things that troubles me most is that you know, culture war has been raging in the USA for a very long time. Um, and there are quite a few signs that it's taking hold in the UK as well. Refugee movement is one trigger. And, you know, we can only wonder whether what the outcome will be of multiple breadbasket failures, which are very much on the cards with global heating. So where that leads me to is the question, can we find paths to reconciliation using that last principle of, of deep adaptation um, so that already ugly situations don't become a whole lot uglier? So in, in my opinion, we, we have to um, allow ourselves to think about some pretty um difficult scenarios in order to pursue the question how can we handle those scenarios as humanely as possible so i'm back with the subject of actual trauma actual threat actual disruption and loss um, <clears throat> as opposed to the existential anxiety that I alluded to earlier. I think that that question of how we behave towards each other 
It's one that I know that Joanna Macy, for one, has given quite a lot of thought to and voiced concern about. And somehow that's the, the final question that comes to my mind as we go through this thread of conversation. Okay, well, thank you very much. It's been very interesting. And the book itself is, again, it's a really fascinating book. It doesn't propose lots of answers as such, as, as except ways to explore the complexity of the issue in, from our own perspectives. Thank you very much, Adrian. It's been great to talk to you. Okay, Nick. Thank you very much. Thanks again for listening. If you are interested to help support this series and help expand the discussion around climate topics, then please do consider backing my channel via Patreon. It will help me produce more content and you will also gain access to more expert interviews. It would be great to engage more with audiences too and understand your views on these topics. Thank you.